Oh, the wonderful cross where his blood ran red and my sin washed white. Hallelujah for the cross. It bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Today we're going to glory in the cross, and I trust you already have been. That old rugged cross is a symbol of death. Yet we wear it on our necklaces, on our bracelets, on our clothing. We have crosses and ornaments inside and outside of our houses, on our vehicles. And we have much to boast about in that cross, much to boast about in the one who was affixed to it by large nails, much to glory in in that in his great love wherewith he loved us, for it was in fact the love that took him there and that love that held him there. He alone has provided the means by which we must be saved. By his sacrifice alone have we been adopted into the family of God, that he would call us his kids, that Jesus would call us brother and friend, and that he would pray that we would be with him someday in glory. For it was on that cruel cross that God ordained my sin and your sin to be punished. It was on that cross that Jesus went willingly obediently, not for his crimes, but for mine and for yours. For it was on that cross where we are all commanded to come and repent and believe on Jesus as Lord and Savior. This morning we're going to get into Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. But on your way there, we're going to stop and look at the cross. In Luke 23, verses 39 to 43, uh, it speaks of two criminals, these evildoers, who were crucified on either side of our Savior. On the right hand and on the left, we see these two thieves, these evildoers. These evildoers, they represent two kingdoms. It's that of this world and that of God represents two religions, that of human achievement and that of divine accomplishment. It represents two eternities, a resurrection of damnation and a resurrection of life. And on one side of Jesus' cross was an evildoer who looked on the sinless Son of God and railed on him, it says. And he told Christ that if he was God, that he should save himself and them. And his only hope and interest was that he would be removed from the punishment of his own crimes, an earthly deliverance from the cross that he was affixed to uh, at that very moment in time. And no concern for his eternal condemnation. On the other side of Jesus' cross was another evildoer, who looked on Jesus and saw his sin before his very eyes being purchased for his pardon. What is our estimation of this second evildoer? By what means was he justified by God? 
that he would be with Jesus that very day in paradise as Jesus promises him. He had no baptism, no circumcision, no denominal, no denominational affiliation, no religious confirmation from man. He was not trusting in good works or morality. He was trusting in the one and only true God who hung on that cross next to him. We'll find these answers to these questions that I asked here in this passage in Galatians in chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. And he says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father God, we are impressed with you, God. You inhabit eternity. You are from everlasting to everlasting. And God, we are just so grateful to the work that you accomplished on that cross. Your predetermined plan carried out that we may be recipients of your grace and mercy. That we may know you personally and call you Father. And Lord, we are so grateful to you and so thankful for that very thing that took place on that cross. Lord, let it be that thing in our forefront that shines forth out of our lives that as people look on us, they see Jesus. And that we are just in the, fort, we're just in the shadow, Father. And Lord, we just uh, pray that you would just bless this time as we look at your word. And Lord, we just uh, thank you so much for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin here in this passage, I just want to get into the context of what we're talking about here in Galatians. Why did he, what is, where is Galatia? Uh, who wrote it? Well, Galatia is a region in Asia Minor, which today is modern Turkey. Uh, it's the only one of Paul's epistles, his letters, written and addressed to churches in more than one city. Uh, the people of that region were a Celtic people who had migrated to that region from Gaul, which is modern France, in the 3rd century B.C. The Romans conquered the Galatians in 189 B.C., but allowed them to have some measure of independence until 25 B.C. when Galatia became a Roman province. The author, the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, was a member of the ultra-traditional sect of uh, the Pharisees. He was a first-century rising star in Judaism. After his conversion, Paul founded churches in the southern Galatian cities of Antioch and Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Uh, these cities, although within the Roman province of Galatia, were not the ethnic Galatian region. There's no record of Paul founding the churches in that northern region. Paul wrote this letter to counter false teachers who were undermining the central Christian doctrine of justification by faith. These false teachers spread their harmful teaching that the Galatians must first 
become Jewish proselytes and submit to the Mosaic law before they could become Christians. Shocked by the Galatians' openness to this heresy, Paul wrote this letter to defend justification by faith and to warn these churches that of the dire consequences of abandoning that essential Christian belief. So what is this justification by faith all about? What is it? Well, justification is to render innocent. Sinclair Ferguson helps us define this when he says, the Bible, in the Bible, the verb, the verb justify means to count righteous, not to make righteous, he says. And also faith is the Greek word pistis, and it's translated in the Bible as faith or trust or believe. It literally means reliance upon Christ for salvation. In Galatians 2.16, it says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Also in Galatians 3:24 through 26 Paul says, "Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are, for you are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus." Also Galatians 3:6 says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is justification by faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it in a very succinct way and says justification is an act of God's grace wherein he pardons all our sin and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The application of this truth, J.C. Ryle says, I hold firmly that the justification of a believer is a finished perfect, complete work, and that the weakest saint, though he may not know and feel it, is as completely justified as the strongest. This is our standing before God the Father as evildoers, is that he's pronounced us as justified. This verse 13, it says, For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. The Judaizers were leading believers in Galatian churches astray by telling them that in addition to having faith in Christ for salvation, they must also be circumcised to really be saved. Their boasting, their boasting was in winning, as it were, believers to their cause. So to what would we attribute this to today in our church? Is this attack still taking place on our faith? Anything that we see as Christ plus something could be defined as this. If we view baptism as a necessary work for salvation, if we have to have faith in Christ plus that work 
Here we have believer's baptism, which signifies our identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we also have died to our old man and are walking in newness of life. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation, but it is a mandate for obedience. There's nothing in the waters of baptism that is saving you. Well, he also mentioned circumcision. We can have denominationalism. Whether we're relying on the church that we're attending to somehow uh, justify us before God. That's something that we can trust in today. I bid you not to trust in that. We can trust in legalism as though somehow, some way, this evildoer is in fact justified before God because I believe that I'm keeping the law perfectly. We can also trust in good works. We can say, well, my good works don't, well, my good works outweigh my bad works. Doesn't that count for something? That's trusting in good works, and that's a heresy. MacArthur helps us and says that there are only two basic religions of the world, that of divine accomplishment and that of human achievement. The religion of a divine accomplishment is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who by God's sovereign grace provided for a man's redemption through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. The religion of human achievement encompasses all over the religions of the world, which share the common basis of works righteousness, of seeking to please God by various forms of methods and human merit and effort. So how does Paul respond to this teaching of this works righteousness? Paul says, God forbid. He said, may it never be. This is a strong negative that carries the idea of a virtual impossibility. Paul uses the same phrase numerous times in the book of Romans to firmly reject false uh, interpretations of the Bible. He uses it here to tell Galatians that it was inconceivable for him to even think of boasting in anything but the cross of Christ. Legalism denies the need of Christ's death. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness has come by the law, Christ is dead in vain. Legalism says that we can attain salvation through other means than that of Christ's atoning death of the cross. If we believe this, we make the cross of Christ of no effect, and Christ is dead in vain. This is idolatry. Legalism says I can justify myself through something I can do. But faith is the anti-work. Trusting in the substitutionary death and vicarious atonement of the sinless Lamb of God. We bring nothing to our salvation but our sin. That no flesh should glory in his presence. And our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In Galatians 6.14 now, Paul makes this tremendous statement. He says, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. To glory in this cross is to delight in and extol the Most High God in the victories of His grace. It is to brag on the Lord's divine accomplishment in the execution of His predetermined plan to allow sinful men to execute His incarnate Son in order that his elect sinners may be set apart and justified, 
a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. To glory in the cross is to boast in the Most High for his mercy that he did not give us what we justly deserve and for his grace that has given us what we don't deserve. To glory in the cross is to praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. To glory in the cross is rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. To glory in the cross is worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It is to know the love of Christ which passes understanding that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. God helps us with the meaning of this. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24 that we read earlier, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, For in these things I delight, says the Lord. We simply glory in this, that we know him. Do you know him? Turn with me to to Philippians chapter 3. Paul echoes this similar statement in this chapter. And starting in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to me to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, it is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. He's talking about these people that are making a division because of the circumcision. And he says, we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Remember the Galatians or the Judaizers who glory in the flesh? He says, we have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4 says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Paul's telling us here that if there's anybody who by the works of the flesh believes that they can be justified before God, there's no greater person to look to than the man of the Apostle Paul, or even Saul, prior to his conversion. He says in verse 5, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He said he's blameless. But what things were gained to me, Those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of many things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him. He says that I may know him. That's what we're talking, that's what Jeremiah is speaking about. That he understands 
and knows me. And you know what's more important? Is that God knows you in that way and that he's called you by his grace from darkness into light. Paul had outshined everyone in his day to his claim of justification through works. But by grace, through faith, he found out justification is through faith. To glory in the cross is to see the cross as the means by which God entered his creation, through his creation, to save many in his creation. Not by anything we do to earn it, We simply cast our poor soul at the Savior's feet. And we cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner, an evildoer, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Glorying or boasting in our vernacular is an expression of pride, which was the furthest thing from Paul's intent here. The Greek term carried the basic meaning of praise, And whether it was representing a sin or a virtue depends on whether self or God is being praised. There is proper and improper boasting and glorying. And it's determined by the one in whom we boast. Are we boasting in ourselves? Are we glorying in ourselves and our achievements, human achievements? Are we glorying in the divine accomplishment of the one who said it is finished. The glorying and boasting and praise of the Judaizers was in their work in subverting some of the Galatians to Jewish legalism. Paul's praise, on the other hand, was in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gloried in the cross because it was was the source of his and every believer's righteousness and acceptance before God. Christians glory in the cross because Christ's sacrifice there provided redemption and eternal life. And that is why it's the supreme symbol of our faith. It's the one and only true gospel of divine accomplishment. On the cross, Christ accomplished, signed, and sealed the new covenant of his grace in his blood. His substitutionary death means that he took the punishment for your sin and died in your place. His vicarious atonement means is that all his blood covers your sin. Glorying in the cross is to acknowledge and delight in the realities of his promises to his people. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. We're going to delight and glory in God for the things that he has done by his grace. As we look here in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Blessed here is the word elogeo, and it's where we get to, and it it means uh, to celebrate with praise. Nothing is more appropriate than for God's people to praise him for his goodness. In all things, whether in pain, struggle, Trials, frustration, or opposition and adversity. We are always to praise God because he is good in the midst of it all. Verse 4 here, 
We're going to fast forward through these things and just recognize the things that we glory in in the cross. Verse 4 says, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The word here, chose, is here in the artist sense and the middle voice indicating God's totally independent choice. Because the verb is reflective, it signifies that God not only chose by himself, but for himself. He chose you for himself. His primary purpose in electing the church was the praise of his own glory. So glory in this, that God knew you and chose you anyway to be a vessel of his mercy to his glory. In verse 5, he says, having predestined us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. We're to glory in this. In another passage, Romans 8, 29 through 30 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did be predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Verse 6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, that God lovingly draws, glory in this, that God lovingly draws redeemers and redeem, sorry, let me say that again. Glory in this, that God lovingly draws redeemed sinners into the intimacy of his own family. God imparts his own distinct nature to his adopted children. In verse 7, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. This word redemption is apolutrosis, and it means to ransom in full. It's the expiation of your sin, that he's paid for it entirely. So glory in this, that his death frees believers from sin's guilt, condemnation, power, bondage, penalty, and some glorious day from its presence. Verses 8 and 9 here say, Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Glory in this, that God has set us apart for good works, that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verses 10 through 12 says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So we must glory in this, that he has inherited us and we have inherited Christ and that we are heirs of God joint heirs with Christ. And finally, verses 13 to 14 says, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. And we're to glory in this, that he is there to empower us, equip us for minute. Uh, ministry and function through uh, the gifts he has given us and that he is the future promise of eternal communion with the Godhead.
Back in Galatians, back in verse 14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The cross of Christ that we glory in is the dividing line between these two kingdoms that we mentioned, these two realities, these two eternities. There's the glory side, and there's the worldly side. These two present very separate existences, two separate kingdoms. The great desire of the one is to extol and highest praise the one to whom praises do. It's to bring honor to the one who saved them, to boast in the divine accomplishment. The desire of the other is to bring honor only to self alone. It's to boast about personal human achievements and to seek after fulfilling the desires of the flesh. This kingdom of this world speaks of an ordered system. In fact, the very word in the Greek world um, is, uh, refers to the ordering of the evil system ruled by Satan and his agents. The world that which is worldly is not re, uh, referring to that which is necessarily secular. But it is a spiritual wickedness which is diametrically opposed to God. And we see this defined in a couple passages in Ephesians uh, chapter 6 and verse 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, it says. And in 2.2, in Ephesians, it says, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. On the worldly side are those who do not have the love of the Father, but they love the things of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, To us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lusts thereof, but he that does the will of God abideth forever. This is God's definition of what he's talking about when he says the world. It's the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He is not in that. The Father is not in that. The life of a person apart from Jesus Christ is a victim of that system. It's a meaningless life, a life with no hopeful plan, purpose for reason, purpose or reason for being. It's a life ruled by the flesh, which naturally and inevitably flows or follows the system of evil promoted by the world, whether in gross immorality or simple day-to-day self-gratification. Jesus says in John eight thirty four, he says, Verily, verily, I say to you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. This is the condition of the world. Whosoever commits sin is a servant of sin. And that was you and me before coming to the cross. We were once lost in sin and it's dark night. No matter how much we wanted to be separated from it, we couldn't. 
We didn't have power over it. We were powerless against it. One day we love it, the other we hate it. We have no ability in and of ourselves to overcome it. But we're so thankful to Jesus Christ who came and died on that cross who said, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth in me should not abide in darkness. That chain that we had, the shackle that we had in sin is now removed in Christ. Charles Wesley illustrates this in a different way in the song, And Can It Be? And we sung that last week. In verse 4, he says, he says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What a statement of what happened to us and who are now in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, this can happen to you. By what means? By faith. By placing your reliance upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. For as many as come to him, he will not cast away. But Paul, pro- Paul proclaims in this verse here that we're considering here in Galatians 6.14. He says, the world is crucified unto me. What can that mean? He's saying all of its pomp and pleasure. He's saying the cross of Christ is a dividing line between two kingdoms, this glory side and this worldly side. It's to the glory side we're called. It's on this side that we're to glory in the Lord. And it's on this side that we have eternal hope in glory with the Lord for eternity. On the glory side of the cross, we have exceeding great and precious promises, abundant life. On the glory side of the cross, the redeemed of the Lord are those who have been crucified with Christ. And this phrase where he says, the world has been crucified to me, relates the believer's spiritual condition before God to the historical fact of his trusting in Christ for salvation and his spiritual union with Christ through his death on the cross. And uh, 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We are overcomers who have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He says it right here, we're overcomers. We have overcome the world. It's a fact. On the glory side of the cross, we're to realize our deadness to sin and sin's power over us. I mentioned Galatians 2.20. It says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This statement, I have been crucified with Christ, is a, it is a, a true identity of position. And he goes on and says that Christ liveth in me. Are you living in, the, in that confidence that Christ's death atoned for your sin? So much so that you can proclaim as Paul did, I am crucified with Christ. 
What is this crucifixion? What, what does it signify? MacArthur helps us with that as well when he says, when a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, sin becomes a dead issue. The law becomes a dead issue. The world becomes a dead issue. We're losing that uh, allurement to the things of the world. Romans 6, 6 through 11 says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed and that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that, you, in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says to reckon this to be so. We need to meditate on these things, and not only that, but believe it. This word reckon is, is used in the same way as if we were reconciling our checkbook. We're not going to write falsities in our checkbook. We're, we're the only ones that doesn't benefit, you know, we don't benefit from that. We need to write the truth down. Write this truth down. Is that you have been crucified with Christ. And that sin's power has no more dominion over you. And that you're to be alive to Christ. We are dead to the kingdom of this world. Defined by the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. When we sin, we are taking up that old man. And we need to reckon it as dead. There's an ancient... Uh, um, Chinese uh, penalty where if you murdered a man they would give you the death penalty by strapping that man to your back and you get to haul him around until diseases come into your body and are we not doing the same thing when we take up that old man and strap him to ourselves and say I'm going to live in this way rather than living in the light of the gospel and following Christ and walking in the Spirit, do we take up that old man? Have we reckoned him dead so that we leave him? Or are we picking him back up and toying around with the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life? We need to reckon him as dead and bury him. We came from being dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins to now being dead to sin and alive to God. But he's not just saying that the world is crucified unto him. He's saying, I am crucified to the world. On the glory side of the cross, we are dead to the world, meaning we have no usefulness to that world system which operates apart from God. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the washing of water by the word. The, allure, the, the allurements of the world are not as attractive as they once were. In that wonderful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, which is now 100 years old, this year, the chorus says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. MacArthur helps us with this truth as well when he says, The true Christian life is not so much a believer living for Christ as it is Christ living. Through the believer. 
I want to repeat that. The true Christian life is not so much a believer living for Christ as Christ living through the believer. Because in Christ, all the fullness of God, in Christ is all the fullness of Godhead bodily. The fullness of God also dwells in every believer as partakers of the divine nature. And since I have been crucified with Christ, the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So where does that leave us? We have one more verse to cover here in the new creature. In verse 15, he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but the new creature, or a new creation. This word means formation. It's a new formation that God has done. God has made us alive in Christ and given us a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 speaks of this also when it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The old life cannot be remolded, even by God, because there is nothing good in the flesh on which to build. Man needs an entirely new life, a new birth, and a new creation. And we cannot build spiritual on carnal. C.S. Lewis tells us, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And now there is a new creation which God himself owns as his workmanship, in which he can look on and pronounce, very good. We're all together and forever changed and being changed. The new formation loves the old rugged cross, and delights greatly in it. For the cross of Jesus Christ was the only way by which the new creation could come into being. We're to view ourselves as being made new in Christ, having been now transported to the glory side of the cross. We're to boast in his divine accomplishment and, <clears throat> and shun any idea that would give us reason to boast in any human achievement. We're to view ourselves as of no value to the kingdom of this world, and that the kingdom of this world has no value to us and is in fact with the, at war with the kingdom of our God. The power of the cross makes the believer a new creature in Jesus Christ. John Gill says, There is a new course of life, both of faith and holiness, a new way of serving God through Christ by the Spirit and from principles of grace, a new Another, and better righteousness is received and embraced. New companions are sought after and delighted in. New riches, honors, glory. A new Jerusalem, yea, new heavens and a new earth are expected by new creatures. And we can read about that in Revelation 21, which Christ says, Behold, I make all things new. So what, now what? What are we left with? Which side of the cross best defines you? The glory side or the worldly side? Have you been to the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith and trust in him, complete reliance upon him for your salvation and repented of your sin? Do you live for him who died for you? Do you delight in that place where God purchased you unto himself that we no longer live our lives unto ourselves but unto him? 
Have you ceased from the pursuit of an existence of boasting and personal promotion and self-gratification? And now that you are a new creation, your highest desire would be to praise, adore, and extol the King of kings and the Lord of lords above all else. That we can confess confidently, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We must be jealous for God's glory and not our own as new creations that God has wrought. We sung this song earlier, The Wonderful Cross. And that song contained words from Isaac Watts. He wrote in 1707. In verse 4 he says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for the work that you have accomplished at that single point in history, the crux where Christ was crucified on that cross. And Father, there was nothing we could do to save ourselves, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But because of his work that you prepared and planned and executed that all who call on the name of Christ shall be saved. And Father, we are so grateful to you for that great salvation, for that relationship that we have with you, that you call us sons and daughters, and Jesus calls us brother, that we can glory in you and, Lord, be free from the sin that had once so strongly entangled us. And Father, we're just so grateful to you for this salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.